I kind of gave you my New Year's Eve thing, or leading in, <laughs> exiting a year and coming into a new one last Thursday night in the Bible study when we went over, again, what it says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 and ways that you can kind of recommit, rededicate your life, if you will, your walk with the Lord to those four pillars of church life, your commitment to doctrine and Bible reading, Bible study, your, your, your commitment to fellowship, your commitment to the Lord's table and all that it represents, your commitment to prayer. Those were kind of the four pillars of church life which then kind of support those pillars, hold up and support a whole plethora of different church-related activities and attitudes and practices. Now I want to get a little glimpse at a little bigger picture and uh, I, want to, um, I want to share with you a little bit just out of the book of Revelation. I'm going to try to not jump around in Scripture too much and just keep everything that I share to you, um, share with you here today, right within the confines of this book. And um, it might end up being like, almost like a little overview of the whole thing, but not quite. One of my favorite John MacArthur messages in years gone by was a, a single message that he does called A Jet Tour Through Revelation. And if you've never heard it, you should. You should find it on YouTube just look it up, John MacArthur, A Jet Tour Through Revelation. This is not going to be that. I listen to that still to this day, and I'm like, wow, did he really do that? And he did, and it's very edifying, and it's very instructive and everything else. I'm, I'm taking a look at a verse in chapter 1, in verse 19, where the Apostle John, who is the recipient of the revelation, is told, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And what I want to do today is recognizing that he was given three distinct things in that verse. The things which he has seen, the things which are, and the things will take, which take place after this. The vast majority, of course, of the book of Revelation is devoted to the third of those things, right? The things that take place after this. But there's two chapters right here, and I've been reading through them a little bit lately and, and thinking about them. I even quoted from one of them recently. Um, but there's these seven letters to the churches that I think cover what this verse refers to as the things which are. The things which are where we live now. If you want to look at that verse as a little outline of the book of Revelation, I think that's, while maybe not perfect or intended that way, it certainly is instructive and helpful. You know, he says the things which he has seen, which is a reference to the vision that he just got in chapter one. I'll read that in a moment. But then when he talks about the things which are, I think what he's talking about is that body of text, that set of seven letters in chapters two and three, which are addressed to the church in the form of seven individual letters to seven churches. And if you look at the verse right after what I just read, verse 20 of chapter 1, see it? It says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Just run downstairs for a minute, if you would. Thanks. Um, so, uh, pardon me for that. No, no problem or anything, just something I'd like him to check on. So, uh, the seven stars and the seven lampstands are something which appeared in the vision that you see in chapter one. And uh, what you see then here are what they represent. You had the Lord who was among this, in this vision, you had the Lord who was among this vision of seven lampstands and seven stars. And uh, the seven lampstands were representative of those seven churches that he's about to address. And by having the Lord pictured in the middle of those, what you see, I think, is that those, the whole thing represents the entire body of the church. In other words, this is, this is an address that 
all the church of all time should consider. This is, this is Jesus taking stock of his church. The seven stars are the angels of the churches. And not, I think, angels understood in the common sense of that word, but angels understood in the real meaning of that word, which is messengers. In other words, probably a reference to the pastors or the teaching elders of the churches, right? So in other words, Jesus, who we have seen in some of our recent studies, is the head and the Lord of his church, takes stock of his church early here in the first uh, in the first days of the church at the late, in the late first century. And he gives these messages then to the apostle John for each one. And, and we, should take, we should take a look at those for ourselves just to take a little stock of, our, for of ourselves the way that Jesus is. Do you follow what I'm trying to say? You see where we're trying to go with this? All right, so with that little introduction, let's go ahead and I'm going to go ahead and read chapter one. And then, like I said, this is... Uh, the part in verse 19 when he says, write the things which you have seen, here's what he saw. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore, that's the apostle John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. So blessed are we, right? Yes. And keep those things which are written in it. Yes. Look at this. For the time is near. Yes. Written almost 2,000 years ago. And if it was near 2,000 years ago, boy, it must really, really be near now. Right? And of course, what's 2,000 years to the Lord? Like two days to us, basically, right? It's nothing. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and ruler over the kings of the earth. Right? John was told at the end of this chapter, as he recorded it, to write what he had seen. And that's what he's doing here. He's writing down what he saw. And he's writing, and uh, he identifies himself there in verse 4. He addresses the recipients of the letter, which I guess you, the, the revelation, which I guess you can say initially was those first seven churches, but is all of us in the church, down through the church age. And he describes for us here Jesus Christ, right? Who is Jesus Christ? The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. The faithful witness in that, what does a witness do? He's a deliverer of a message, basically, right? When you go and witness to someone, we're speaking of sharing the gospel with them. Jesus is the faithful witness. Jesus brought to us the message of God. Jesus brought to us the fulfillment of all this we celebrated at Christmas, right? The beginning of the fulfillment of the promises that God made to bring salvation. Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is the first person ever to rise from the dead. Listen, never to die again, yeah. right? I mean, Jesus himself had resurrected other people from the dead, so he wasn't just the first, people, the first person to rise from the dead, but he's the first born from the dead, meaning he was born out of death, never to die again, and is alive today, just as sure as you and I are sitting together here in his presence. Amen? And he's the ruler over the kings of the earth. And you look around at the earth, and it may not look like Jesus is the ruler, but you know what? He is... And even if it's not evidently manifest right now, it certainly will one day when these things are fulfilled. Amen. King of kings, Lord of lords. And then some praise here. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You can echo that amen right there, right? Hallelujah. And I'm not going to unpack all that now, but look at verse 7. Behold, this is John telling us of Jesus. Behold, he's coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Yeah. Jesus is coming 
And he's not coming like he did in the way we celebrate at Christmas. Not many people saw him come when he was first born, right? Not too many. Very privileged, but small, small, small number. When he comes the second time, everyone's going to see it. Amen? How's he going to bring that about? I don't know. But I know we live in a day and age where it's not that difficult for everybody in the world to see something at the same time. So, uh, even they who pierced him, which is a reference, I believe, to the nation of Israel, whose chief priests who had in his day when he was first here had handed him over to be crucified. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. See that? We say hallelujah and we say amen. Now, the, the tragedy from our perspective, not from God's, because everything that God does is glorious and wonderful and perfect and makes him worthy of worship. But you'll, you would see if we were going to go through all of Revelation that there are a number of times where John weeps, right? And he has to bring himself to say things like, even so. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Like, you know, when he saw the tragedy and the difficulty that was coming on the earth, it was like, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Right? And kind of, this is one of those things. The Lord is coming, and the Lord's coming is going to be a great day that every one of his children eagerly anticipate. But for the world, it's going to be a day of mourning. Why? Because the world has rejected him. And when the Lord Jesus comes, there is accountability coming with him for that rejection. Right? That's one of the reasons why we must now, as a matter, a matter of urgency as Christians, look at our lives, examine ourselves, purify our lives, dedicate, recommit our lives to walking with Him, serving Him, not walking in fear of this world, not walking in love of this world, not walking in devotion to the things and entertainments and comforts of this world, but walking in humble commitment to Him. Because the day that he comes is going to be a day of mourning for the world, but it's not supposed to be a day of mourning for us. It's a day of rejoicing for us. It is the blessed hope of every Christian. Amen? Even so, amen. Then, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Boy, there's a lot in that statement, isn't there? Right? I love that he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, which are the first and last letters of not the Hebrew alphabet, but the Greek alphabet. Right? So Jesus, who was Jewish, when speaking to John, who was Jewish, identified himself as Alpha and Omega, not as the first and last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Right? Because why? Because he is the first and the last over all of the earth. He is the Savior for the whole world. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And Greek, of course, at the time that this was written, is like the number one language of that known part of the world, right? And so Jesus is identifying himself by saying the Alpha and the Omega, not as just the King and the Lord of that specific nation of Israel, but as King and Lord over all the earth when he comes. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, who is, he is. The Lord is right now. Who was, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Lord simply always has been. He is eternal. And who is to come. We know that He is coming. So He currently is. He always was. And He is coming. And then finally, what? The Almighty. That is a clear Perfect statement of his deity. He is God in the flesh. Amen? John is told to write what you've seen. That's what he's seen. You want to see the form in which he saw it? Watch this. I mean, that's his description of Jesus. Okay? Now he's going to describe for you the moment where Jesus appeared to him. John, I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, he was exiled. That was his persecution. Many, many Christians, many of the apostles almost certainly were martyred in the early days. John's fate seems to have been that he was exiled to this basically dead rock. 
um, called Patmos. Why? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, because he preached the word of the gospel wherever he went. And he said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Right? How about that? Even being alone on a deserted island did not stop the Apostle John from having church on the Lord's day. Amen. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And then they're listed here. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned... Now, and of course, those are the seven churches that are addressed in chapters 2 and 3, which I'm going to get into in a moment here. We're going to do a quick overview of that whole section. And that's where we'll spend most of our time today. But you can see, this is then the Lord himself saying, I've got a message and I've got news for my church. And here is... Uh, Jesus then is about to like take a little stock of his church. But first, get this vision that John saw. He says, John speaking himself, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw, here's that vision that gets explained over in verse 20, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were as white as wool. This is a little different than the baby in the manger, right? He's not wrapped in swaddling cloths here. Yeah. His head and his hair were as white as wool, as white as snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. Wow. He had, yes, hallelujah, and wow, those are the right reactions. You think, and, and, and where do you see what John's reaction was? We're just reading it. John experienced it. So you can say John probably had a little starker reaction than us, right? He had in his right hand seven stars, right? So we saw the seven golden lampstands that, that, that uh, we're told represents the church. And he had in his right hand seven stars. That represents the leaders of the, the, the churches, the messengers, the angels of the churches. Boy, that gives me comfort. If I could just stop and, and, and dwell on that for a minute. Because where are those seven stars? They're in his hand. How comforting it must it be for anyone who serves in that capacity in a church to know that in the book of Revelation, what represents you is being held right in Christ's hand. He's the head of the church. You know, you know the, 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 I'm not talking about myself here, okay? But you know the passage of Scripture that makes reference to uh, giving double honor to those who labor, especially the elders who labor faithfully, especially those who labor in the Word? Here's one of the reasons why. It's not because there's anything special about me or anybody else who does that. It's because Christ, who is the head of the church, holds those people in his own hands. And that is both a great blessing and a frightening challenge. It's a great blessing because there is great peace and there is great love and there is great joy in knowing that intimate of a closeness with the Lord, but we're also told that those who teach are held to a higher standard when we give account of our lives to the Lord because the things we say affect others, right? But the Lord holds it all in His hands. So praise God for that. Out of His mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. No coincidence that in the book of Hebrews, the Word of God is described as what? A two-edged sword. Right, Because what would come out of the mouth of Jesus? Everything that comes out of the mouth of Jesus is the word of God. Because he's God. Right? And his countenance was like the sun. How would you like that? How would you like to be awakened on a deserted island when you're in the spirit on the Lord's day by someone who when he speaks sounds like a trumpet blast and many oceans and waters crashing all over the place? And then when you turn around, it's like your face is looking into the sun. 
All right? Well, I don't know what your reaction would be, but here's what John's was in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now, remember, always, I always take joy in pointing this out because it just blows my own mind. John was a guy who knew Jesus face to face when he was on the earth. He walked closely with him. John, it would seem, was from among the ranks of the disciples, let's say one of the ones who maybe was personally more close to the Lord Jesus. John was the one when Jesus was on the cross to whom Jesus said concerning his mother, Behold your mother. And to his mother, referring to him, Behold your son. Pretty, pretty important, right? I mean, listen, at least James and Jude, who were the half-brothers of Jesus, were still alive at that time, right? And yet it was the Apostle John to whom Jesus said, Behold your mother, assigning the care of his mother to John. That is to say that in life, John and Jesus, beyond just the master and student, mentor and disciple, Lord, slave, beyond just those relationships, they were friends. They were friends. When Jesus appears to John, he collapses at the sight as if he were dead. It's, it evokes in my mind Peter when Jesus said, throw your nets out, and he pulls in that crazy large catch of fish, and Peter's reaction is like, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I mean, listen, let's remember you know, who the baby in the manger was. Let's remember who our Lord Jesus is. He's God Almighty. We're told that over there in verse 8. He is to be revered. He is to be worshipped. He is to be trusted. He is to be believed. He is to be preached. And he is to be obeyed. He is the Lord. And you and I, listen, if you're in Christ, you and I will have, maybe not this exact experience, but something like it. The judgment seat of Christ. We, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You keep that in mind when you think about who you serve. It's not a casual thing. Jesus isn't just some casual friend of ours. He is our friend. He said, he said you know, he referred to his disciples as friends. He is a friend. He is a brother in a sense. In a sense, Right? in that we have the same Father, right? But he's the Lord. All right, let's go on. He had, look what he did. He did something that all I can say is very Jesus. After he appears this, (laughs) after he appears this way, and John has the reaction that he does, and he lays his right hand on John and says, don't be afraid. That's so Jesus, isn't it? After appearing like that, puts his right hand on him and says, don't be afraid. I feel like this just died, did it? All right, y'all can still hear me, right? We're having all kinds of things going on today. (laughs) All right. Uh, Boy, these batteries don't last long. Got to get some good. Yeah, you know what? Why not? We're going to get some new batteries but I'm going to keep talking until we do. Um, I'm the first and the last. I'm he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. In other words, Jesus, the one who holds the keys is in control. Even the place of the dead and death itself are all subject to Jesus. He rose from it. Right? Jesus is the ruler even of death. 
He conquered it. He vanquished all of its power on behalf of those who would believe in Him. Then after saying all these things, then we came to verse 19, which is where I started, where John is commanded, write all this stuff down. Write it down. Write the things which you have seen. That's what we just read. We just read the things which we have seen. Here we go. Quick battery change. Ready? I know I changed them recently because the ones I changed out of last time are still sitting here. (laughs) How's that? How's that? Hello? Yay. Hallelujah. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are, which we're about to get into, And then, of course, what Revelation is famous for, which is the things which will take place after this. And then he explains the mystery of the stars and the lampstands, which I already explained. Now, all of that to bring us to the beginning of chapter 2. The things which are. The age of the church, if you will. There were seven churches in Western Asia, Western Turkey, we would say today. Jesus himself named the seven places and they were, they were places, they were literal actual churches which, with literal actual congregations, with literal actual pastors and you read about some of them in the book of Acts. I mean, where we left off in the book of Acts, we had just been in Ephesus, that's one of the churches here, right? And so church life was happening And the first thing I want to observe before I read any of it is this. Ready? Everyone should pay attention to this. Jesus was, ready, aware and interested in what was happening in the life of his church. And, may I add, because we sometimes will step back and there are reasons why we do this and we'll kind of take a macro view of church and we'll say, well... You know, we're all the church, which there's truth to. All believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, universally we are the church. But notice that Jesus doesn't just address the church here. He addresses churches. Individual churches that have individual angels, individual messengers. So just the fact that the Lord Jesus, in giving his revelation to John, takes the time to address individual churches is evidence enough that the Lord Jesus observes, takes note of, and has an interest in what happens in not just the church, but in churches. The micro view. That should be enough for you and for I to draw a few conclusions. One of them, I need to be part of a church. I need to be committed to a church. I need to be devoted to and loyal to a church. I need to be part of the body of a congregation of a church that I may serve, that I may gather, that I may assemble. I may not know what all of my spiritual gifts are that I may put to use in that church, but at least, at very least, to start off, I am going to attend, I am going to participate, I am going to be involved, I am going to be there. Even just my presence gives me the opportunity to offer fellowship and prayer and encouragement to other people who are there who may need it. Hello? Amen. Right? Knowing that the Lord, who is the head of churches, I mean, the Bible calls him the head of the church. Here we see that he's the head of churches as well. Right? So if the Lord is the head of churches, that ought to make you, just with that little bit of revelation right there, that ought to make your esteem for the importance of the local church rise in your mind, and practically in your conduct. So one at a time then, we're told that these letters are addressed to the angel of the church at, the first one is Ephesus. 
So John's being told, and you know, right there, that confirms what? That the use of the word angel is not a reference to an angelic being. These letters aren't written to like beings in a different realm. They're written to us. So angel is obviously a reference to a person, right? It's a reference to like the church leader. So the letters are addressed to them. And let's now take them one at a time, and I just want to like kind of highlight, and that's what we'll do the rest of our time today. I just want to highlight a little bit as we kind of take stock of our own lives and our own church. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, that's Jesus, right? Who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, Here's what Jesus says to this church. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. He compliments, beyond compliments, he commends their standards, right? You've tested those who say that they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. That is affirmed as a good practice. In other words, it's important to be able to evaluate other teaching and things that you hear by the Word of God and note those who bring false doctrines and warn others off of them. That's commended by Jesus here. And you've persevered and you have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. That's commended by Jesus himself here. Working. Laboring persevering through hard times for his name's sake. That is, for the sake of spreading the glory of the name of Jesus, the Messiah. That is commended here. Every church should be part of that. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have lost your first love. So, what does that tell us? I'm not going to read every word of this because there's no time to go through all of those in one sitting that deeply. But the idea that they've lost their first love is it's a simple one, I think. But it's of tantamount importance. All of the testing of false teachers and false doctrines, all of the witnessing and evangelizing that you do, All of the standards that you keep to try to keep things holy and upright. As much as the Lord Jesus is served by and approves of that. It can never take the place of simply loving Jesus. He gave himself for us. Because he loves us. And we are called to love him. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, famously, if I, have, if I give all my gifts to the poor, if I give my body to be burned, if I do this, if I do that, you know, but I don't have love, it's nothing. Nothing. And that passage in 1 Corinthians is about brotherly love from believer to believer. This passage is not about love from believer to believer. This passage is about the first love. Paul writes of the horizontal love. This is the vertical love. This is our love for God. Brothers and sisters, heed what's being taught here. May we ask ourselves the same question that Jesus asked Peter three times after he rose from the dead. Do you love him? Do you love him? Do you love him? Do not let even good God-honoring activities take the place of your love for Jesus. That love needs to be like any love in any relationship. Your love for your spouse, your love for your children, your love for your parents. Every relationship that involves love requires maintenance and careful care. So does your love for Jesus. Don't let worldliness drown it out.
Don't let zeal for good doctrine down it, drown it out. Yes, it can do that. It is possible to dot every I and cross every T of doctrine and not have love for Jesus in your heart. It is possible to witness to people and not have love for Jesus in your heart. Do you know that? Spend time at his feet frequently. Spend time meditating on just the glory and beauty of who he is. Spend time thanking him. Spend time praising him. Don't neglect the other things. Don't neglect the sound doctrine. Don't neglect the good proper standards. Don't neglect the evangelism. But don't do them at the expense of your love for Jesus. He calls them to repentance. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent and do the first works. Or I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What's the lampstand? The lampstand is what represented them before the Lord. The lampstands represented the churches. So when he, basically what he says, when he says, I'll come and remove your lampstand, what he's saying is, if you stop your first love, if you don't get repent and get back to your first love, you're not going to be a church anymore. That's basically what he's saying. Right? It, it, in human terms, it seems like an excessively melodramatic or dire warning. But we just don't get it sometimes when it comes to God. The crucialness of these things. The Lord Jesus, of course, has every proper right to say that to us. If you don't love me, you're not going to last very long as a church. Let us love Jesus together. Go ahead to verse 8. I'm sorry, I don't have time to address the deeds of the Nicolaitans and all these things. We've done that before, actually. We'll we'll do it again at some point. I want to just kind of highlight a little bit of each one of these. Verse 8. To the angel of the church in Pergamos, right? These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Again, Jesus identifying himself. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you're rich. So right there. He identifies them as what? They were in constant trouble. They were poor, all in earthly terms. But actually, before Jesus, what were they? Rich. Yeah? Yeah, that's true. They were rich because it would seem unlike the first church. This church had great and sincere love for Jesus to the point that they endured hardship. Now look. I know the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and are not. In other words, they're false, false, corrupt, imposter believers. But they're a synagogue of Satan. Imagine that. Now verse 10, ready? Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Now, Sometimes, let me tell you something, historically there have been times where preachers have tried to take these letters written to the churches and have tried to make a chronology out of them. Like, like the, the first letter addressed the early church and then this addressed the next period of the church. I don't think there's any reason to believe that. I think the Lord Jesus is addressing his entire church of all time by writing to all of these churches. Right? It's not... Don't, don't, don't fall into what I think is a trap of trying to like make some kind of system out of this that you could never possibly do. This is the Lord addressing his church in all seven of these letters. There's something to learn for us in every single one of these letters. What is said to this church is that they were about to endure hardship and trouble. We need to be prepared. As Christians, we are to love the Lord And we are to serve the Lord, even recognizing and knowing that it could very well be that even at the hands of false believers, we may endure hardship and trouble. What are they told to do at the end of verse 10? Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray. We need to look to the Lord and we need to ask him to give us strength 
and perseverance in the face of what may come to us, that we would not turn our back on him in the hour of testing and even endure it faithfully to death if need be, standing for his name and preaching his name. I admit it's hard to quantify that as an American where we're very free. I have to say to you, I don't know that it's always going to be like that. And we might be the generation that experiences a lot of the forsaking and losing of some of that real threat. We should be praying now, knowing what the Lord has spoken. We should be praying now for the Lord to give us strength for when that hour comes. Go to verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, right? These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. All of these are allusions back to things in chapter 1, right? What's he say here? I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, right? So this was a church that was in a place where the culture... The religion, everything was dominated by Satan. Probably a small church. Just a little group of people. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days which Antipas Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So this is a church where they continued to hold on to the name of Jesus even when one of them had been killed. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. And, you know, if you're wondering what the doctrine of Balaam is, you can go back to the book of Numbers and read about Balak and Balaam, but Jesus is telling you the bit about it that you need to know right here, right? to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Verse 16, he calls them to repentance like he does the rest of them. So this was a church that had a steadfast commitment to the Lord, but they had among them those who tolerated idolatry and sexual immorality. And what does he call them to? Repentance. Repentance. Sexual immorality is a plague in the modern age. You know, rampant sexual immorality and rampant idolatry are marks of what? Places where Satan reigns. That's what we learned from this letter, right? And so we need to be careful not to slip into that, right? We worship and serve one God and we are absolutely called to walk in holiness before him. We are saved by grace through faith, we're not saved by our works. That's not what he's calling you to here. But he is calling you to repent of evil works and to walk before the Lord in the way that you ought. As it says in 1 Corinthians, three simple words, flee sexual immorality. Other things you stand up and fight against, you don't stand up and fight against sexual immorality. You simply run away from it. Keep it out of your life. Listen, If you've stumbled, if you've slipped, if you've failed, it's good to know that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess our sins to him. It's good to know that we are saved and kept by his grace and not by our own works. And we do live in a culture that is ridiculously sexualized in every possible way, even in perverted ways. Homosexuality people with all sorts of crazy gender confusion. And I'm not being hard on all those people because, you know, the Lord died for the sins of anyone who will humble themselves and repent and come to faith, right? But we have to be careful not to give ourselves over to idolatry and sexual immorality, but to walk in holiness and purity. Some of that had crept into the next church, the church at Thyatira. See verse 18? And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? These things says the Son of God, who has, another picture of that vision, eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. You know, always referring back to the vision in chapter 1 to remind you who it is who's saying these things. 
These are not men's opinions. These are straight from Jesus to John into the book and to you and I. What's up with this church? I know your works and your love, your service, your faith and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. That's a good thing. In other words, they had grown. The last works were more than the first works. They had increased. Right? That's good. They had grown in fruitfulness. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Can we just stop and remind ourselves, this is Jesus looking at individual churches and pointing things out to them. He's in them. He's among them. He notices and he cares. And he has every right to. They're his. He died for them and purchased them with his blood. And so we must pay attention. You allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things offered to idols. It, it, it almost seems like it's the same as the previous church. The difference is the presence of the reference to Jezebel. Now, while it is impossible to say exactly what that means, what do we know about Jezebel in the Old Testament? Well, she's married to an Israelite king, Right? But she basically is pulling all the strings of her husband, that king, and pulling him aside from worship of God and pulling him into all sorts of deviant practice which caused the entire nation to follow them into practice. Can you say something here about perhaps the twisting of gender roles in the church? Maybe that's perhaps Jesus has something to do with that. We live in the last days, in a day and age where when the Bible says, when the Bible calls men to preaching and teaching and leadership in the churches and calls women and wives to submit to their husbands and to keep silent in the churches, that is in the modern age resoundingly mocked and questioned, and even among Christians, has been overturned. Could this have something to do with that? Perhaps. Whatever specifically it is, the reference to Jezebel, it had led people into idolatry and sexual immorality. There were practices that were being taught by someone who claimed to be a prophetess in this church that evoked the memory of Jezebel from the Old Testament and led the people of the church who were doing good works and serving the Lord, but at the same time were being swept into, through false teaching, sexual immorality and idolatry. Jesus cares how his church is led. That's The problem in this church is church leadership. Right? They were being led by someone who was leading them off into sinfulness. That's what makes it a little different from the previous one. Right? Church leadership needs to be careful to lead people in the path of faith, in the path of humility, in the path of love, in the path of righteousness, in the path of holiness, for the sake of him who bought us with his blood. Amen? Amen? Hallelujah. Let's continue. Chapter 3 and verse 1. This is just an overview. That's why we're not reading every word today. We have, on a number of occasions in my almost 20 years here, gone detail-wise through these letters, and we will again if the Lord permits. But today is a survey day. Chapter 3 and verse 1. I mean, it's New Year's. We ought to like take stock of what the Lord said to his own church, right? To the angel of the church in Sardis, and, you know, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, again, hearkening back to chapter one. I know your works. Look, that you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. In many respects, this is the one that like, this is the one that like scares me the most. I know you probably think Laodicea is the one who would scare us the most because it seems most like you know, the modern American church. We'll get there. But this one really scares me. You know why? Because they look alive, but they're dead. 
They look like something that's deceptive and they're not. You have a name that you're alive. You call yourself church. You call yourself Fellowship Bible Church. You call yourself Grace Church. You call yourself First Baptist Church. You call yourself First Methodist Church. You call yourself Community Church. You call yourself this. You call yourself that. You have a name that you're a church and you have a name that you're alive, but really you're dead. Now look, look what he says to them. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. In other words, even within this church, which had a name that there was life there, but really it was dead, there were among them people who were really alive. You know, the Lord, before when he was on the earth, before he was crucified, he spoke of there being wheat and tares together. He spoke of there being sheep and goats together. Right? He speaks of true disciples and false disciples. Speaks of things like two men out in a field, one's taken, the other's left behind. That's what you have here in this church, in Sardis. I have not found your works perfect before God. He goes on to call them to repentance and warn them that the hour is coming when he's going to come like a thief. Verse 4 says, You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. I mean, Lord willing, it would be everyone, right? But they only had a few. And verse 5, he tells them to overcome. Look, here's something you really want to guard against, is the hypocrisy of calling yourself church when there's no zeal, there's no love, there's no service. It's just providing an, a religious experience for people so they can feel like they're connected. That's not Christianity. Christianity never was that. Christianity is all about a living, active manifesting of your reconciliation to God by walking with Him. Devoted to prayer, devoted to love, devoted to fellowship, devoted to assembly, devoted to worship, devoted to proclaiming his name, filled with real love for Jesus, all of which produces genuine, authentic, real good works that glorify his name. You can call yourself church and you can have services that people will come to. And it all can be a whitewashed tomb. We need to guard against that. We need to make sure, listen, and, and, and if we're guilty of it, Jesus doesn't just write them off here. He calls them to repent. Yeah. What does repent mean? Not what does it mean by definition, because we know that, but what does repent signify? I submit to you that the call to repentance signifies a chance. The call to repentance signifies an opportunity to get right. But it requires humility and courage and love and devotion to Christ that you might examine yourself, purge out what's wrong, and recommit yourself to the love of Christ. That's how you come back to life. Real life. Not just a surface appearance of life. Real life. Let's go on. Two more. Verse 7. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, the uh, phila, phileo, the love among brothers, right? Adelphi, referring to like a town or a city, right? Did you know that? that the reason Philadelphia in Pennsylvania is called the city of brotherly love is not just a nickname, it's literally what the word means, right? The, the, the church that was in the place that was named for love among brothers before there even was a Christianity. These things says he was holy, he who's true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. That's the Lord. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door that no one can shut it. 
and you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. So far, this sounds pretty good, right? Let's keep reading it. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I'm going to make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. You know what? He didn't say anything back to them. You know? It's the one of these letters where it's just all commendation. And because of that, what does he say to them? He makes the connection between the fact that they would be kept from the hour of trial which was coming on the earth. What is that? Well, that can only be a reference to the great tribulation which the rest of the book of Revelation describes. Now, some will look into this and see the pre-tribulational rapture. Some will look at it and not see a pre-tribulational rapture. They'll see something else. Some will look at this and even see like a partial rapture. Like, since it's only one of the seven churches that he's speaking to, he's referring to taking Christians out of the world, a portion of them. May I say to you that I don't know that you can absolutely find any rapture in that verse at all. When he says, I will keep you from... And look, this isn't to make a discussion about pre-tribulational rapture versus mid-tribulational rapture versus post-tribulational rapture. That's an interesting and good discussion to have. And there's valid points, I think, that can be made about all those things. As you know, I lean towards a pre-tribulational rapture, but I don't alienate myself from others with different views because there are very intelligent and very good thought-out views of other views of that, okay? Ultimately, the Lord's going to do what he's going to do. I've even, like, in some sense come to realize that when the Lord, those angels stood by at the Lord's ascension and said, you know, basically nobody knows, or Jesus said, Jesus himself said, nobody knows except my Father in heaven, you know, when these things are going to happen. There's a certain ambiguity that seems to be divinely written into it, right? However, what he's saying here is, When the great tribulation comes on the earth, which it's coming, these faithful ones will be kept from it. It's a picture of his protection. It's a picture of his care. And it's a picture of his love. If you and I were to look at this verse and look at this passage, instead of just devoting ourselves to trying to figure out what eschatological significance it may have, what we should do as Christians and look at the, is look at this passage of Scripture and say, what was it that caused Jesus to speak like this to these people and then go after it ourselves? That's what we should do, right? What were they? They did not deny His name. They persevered. They stayed faithful. There's a heading in my study Bible over this section called the faithful church. And it's the local church. It's not the whole church. It's a local church that stayed faithful in the midst of trials and tribulations. Hey, 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 everybody. Are we in the midst of trials and tribulations right now? Look look around. (laughs) Stay faithful. Don't use the present circumstances as an opportunity to go to sleep. Don't use the present circumstances as an opportunity to drift away. Don't use the present circumstances as an opportunity to, to, to slough off to some theoretical future date your devotion to Christ and your service to Christ. I don't care what's going on. I don't care what's going around. I don't care what the trouble is. I'm a Christian today. And I'm going to serve him today. I'm going to worship him today. That's what these guys were. 
And Jesus commended them and said, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial, which is coming on the whole earth. Wow. Last one. And then we end. The Laodicean church. Verse 15, he says to the Laodicean church, I know your works that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. It would seem that he's illustrating with a drink of water because the cold or hot seems to be illustrating something that's taken in in the mouth because he speaks next of spitting it out. I know your works that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. So before you get the diagnosis, this church is in trouble. This church is in trouble. This is, it's called the lukewarm church. I would call it the useless church. Some go so far as to call it the apostate church. I don't know if I quite take it that far myself. Because they are a church after all. Addressed here. But, what does he say? Here's why, verse 17. You say, you know, whenever whenever you read Scripture, whenever you read Scripture and you read the words, because you say, you know there's some contrast coming that's not going to be good, right? Because you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And you don't know that you're wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked. What's being contrasted in that verse? What's being contrasted in that verse? This is, this is the whole revelation of this passage. What's being contrasted is what they think and what they say. They think one thing of themselves, and it causes them to say what they say. They say that they're rich and have need of nothing because that's what they think. But in actuality, what are they? They're not that at all. They don't recognize their own spiritual corruption. This is the worldly church. This is the church that loves the world, has the riches of the world, has the pleasures of the world, and because they're so drunk, because they're intoxicated, because they are stoned, they are high on the pleasures of this world, they do not recognize the reality that they are actually wretchedly sick. They think they look good when they're naked. They're blind. That's why he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Don't don't buy the fool's gold of the pleasure of this world. Buy from Jesus gold refined in the fire, real gold. That you may be rich. Real riches, spiritual riches, eternal riches, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And then this great comforting statement, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So that affirms that they're still part of it, you know? Even though, even though he has probably the strongest criticisms to say to them, he also gives them that amazing affirmation by what? As saying that as many as I love, I rebuke and chase. You can hear the words of Hebrews chapter 12, right? Which says, what father doesn't chasten a son that he loves? And he actually says in Hebrews 12, if you're without that chastening, you're illegitimate. You're not even sons. So Jesus speaks to this church as still part of his body, part of his church. But man, they are way off. And so he calls them not just to repentance, but what? To be zealous and repent. He calls them to quick, earnest, fiery, hot repentance. You need a big time turnaround right here. If you're in this, this will keep you drunk all the way to your death and render you blind, render you senseless. Like lukewarm water. You pick up, you you know, you want your coffee hot. You want your water cold. You pick up a coffee and it's not Hot, you pick up a water, you expect it to be cold, and it's room temperature, bleh. 
I mean, maybe some people don't like it like that. And, you know, maybe you're okay with that, right? I know for me, man, when I want my coffee, it's got to be hot. And as soon as it's not hot anymore, I'm done with it. You know? Blech. That, that's, that, that's what this church is like to the Lord. And so what does he say? He says to them in verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. And you know, a lot of times that verse gets used to speak to unbelievers, but that's not who's being talked to. That's Jesus standing outside his own church. Let me in, let me in, let me in. That's the pathetic picture that's there. This is not Jesus begging the world to receive him. This is Jesus asking his own church, open up, let me in. Your worldliness has shoved me out. If you do open up, I'll come in and I'll dine with you. There's that chance again. All right. I've gone over my time and I'm going to end right here. We won't sing the last hymn. We'll just pray and we'll close. Thanks for bearing with me a little bit longer today. But I want to close just by saying, look, I know I didn't go over every single point of all of this section, but you can go home and you can read it and you can study it. Take it to heart, man. Look, when we speak of, when we speak of letters in the New Testament, we often speak of the things that Paul wrote, we often, the things that Peter wrote, some of the epistles that stand alone by their books. But here, really what these are, is these are epistles that are contained in a larger book. And sometimes we forget about them. But this, but this is Christ's own epistle to his church. Look at it that way. Read it. Study it. Know it. Pray for strength to be a doer of it. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Hard lessons. Help us to examine ourselves as a church, as individuals. Be zealous and obedient to the call to repentance, to the call to all of the commands of these letters. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.